on the whole, sociologists, we're not, you know, we're not Wall Street traders. We're not uh, con people. You know, we're not playing a shell game here, you know. Hello, I'm Elena Vansty, a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kirby Goff, Associate Director of Research at the Bonnick Institute at Rice University. We're the hosts of Moral Matters, a podcast of the Altruism, Morality, and Social Solidarity section of the American Sociological Association. In our podcasts, we interview sociologists about their work and how it relates to sociology and society more broadly. Okay, Elena, that's good, but I think we need to unpack this a bit. What is the Altruism, Morality, and Social Solidarity section? Yes, we're a group of sociologists in the American Sociological Association who study the context of altruism, morality, and how people come together in solidarity. So sometimes we say that we study the sociology of the good. Okay, I like that. Why don't we get started? In this episode, we have invited Shai Dromi and Sam Stabler to talk about their new book. I've got it right here, Moral Minefields. Shai Dromi is Associate Senior Lecturer on Sociology at Harvard University, and Sam Stabler is a Doctoral Lecturer in the Department of Sociology at Hunter College. Uh, Sam and Shai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm going to start this off. So maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about the book Moral Minefields. So uh, how did you decide to write this, and what's kind of the main argument of the book? Yeah, so... Um... This is a book, we've been working on it for, uh, I would say about 10 years, um, where um, our thinking about it really started when we were uh, in kind of mid-grad school. Um, there was a, there were several different uh, conversations going on about what sort of values should guide morality uh, in sociology. Uh, how should the sociologists be thinking about, um, you know, the good society, um, personhood, um, justice and so on. And I'm, I'm referring, for example, to critical realism that was a project um, at our time at, at our time in grad school. Um, some of the presidential addresses, Alden Morris, uh, Mary Romero more recently, um, and, uh, and, and also some of the public controversies that were going on. Um, Mark Regneris's uh, research, uh, Alice Kaufman's research, um, Raised, raised many questions that were circling around. And the one thing that was striking to us is how many different kind of uh, logics are circulating that in a way don't speak to each other. And that, that I think, sparked um, the, initial, the initial idea for the book. I don't know, Sam, do you want to? Wanna... Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. And so, you know, we kind of entered grad school with this concern about, you know, these different controversies and these different arguments about sociology being politically engaged or publicly engaged. And so, you know, the hope is that the book uh, kind of helps provide a way to navigate these debates. I mean, I think what we kind of came out with at the end was this recognition of, you know, sociology having these like explicit, explicitly moral dimensions and moral boundaries um, but also learning about kind of the creativity and the, the, the ability of, you know, people really to invent and think through new ways of acting and researching society in a morally justifiable way. Fantastic. Thank you. 
We really liked the way that you initially in your book presented um, or introduced these different moral repertoires through some examples of critiques that an academic might receive after they've given a lecture. And so we've modified, uh, shortened these a little bit, and we're going to do a little moral repertoires quiz for you. So Kirby and I are going to alternate reading you some hypothetical critiques that a sociologist might receive after giving a talk. And I want you to tell us what is the moral repertoire that the critique is drawing on and kind of unpack it a little bit. Um, give us give us the elevator pitch for that moral repertoire. You ready? Let's go. Let's see All how right. we do. <laughs> uh, Kirby is keeping score on this. Number one. Oh yeah, okay. Your data doesn't support your claims. There are clearly measurement errors in this work. We would call that, that we would call the efficiency repertoire, right? And so, the, uh, and so the efficiency repertoire is uh, this idea that, you know, good research is efficient and organized and systematic and based on data. You know, people, people say data-driven research, right? I mean, all research is theoretically data-driven, right? But when you say data-driven research, you actually kind of mean this efficiency repertoire, right? What you mean is, uh, do you have the right statistical information? Did you count in the right way? And do you have that long sought after statistical significance that we all need <laughs> uh, to prove something in the social world. Or if you're, if you're a qualitative researcher, did you, uh, you know, how did you sample your population? Did you ask the right question and, and so on? Uh, but whatever procedure you, you did that you actually did it in an expert, expert way that speaks to your claims. Fantastic, thank you, one for one. That's right. So far, so good. And uh, just to clarify, so these these are moral repertoires, right? These are the kind of uh, ways in which you've observed people arguing about the, the quality and the goodness of, of research, research strategies. Uh, is that a good way to kind of summarize uh, what these are? Yeah, I think logics by which um, academics evaluate what what's good um, research, both uh, both formally and substantively. Mm. Yeah. So, and, uh, oh, go ahead, Sam. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so I, mean, I think part of uh, Elena's game, right, is this, like, Shai and I set up this, like, kind of hypothetical, right, which is a faculty conference talk, right, uh, job talk, whatever, just a talk in the department, right? And, you know, there are all these characters, and they each have these different repertoires, right? And so one is your data don't support your conclusions. That's the efficiency repertoire, but there are more. There are more. Oh, let's see if I can, we can identify them, I'm worried. Okay, <laughs> on to the next, on to the next quiz. <laughs> Be your turn. <laughs> All right. So imagine you are presented your research and this is what you hear from a very kind reviewer in the audience. I'm surprised you're not in conversation with the psychological literature on this topic. I'd encourage you to pay more attention to insights from other disciplines. Yeah, so I it's it's my turn. So <laughs> I'll say network um, repertoire, and by network we mean uh, the view of the view of sociological research as good in so far as it <clears throat> brings together um, literatures from the diverse um, context. It's interdisciplinary. Perhaps it's international, um, you know, based on collaborations with um, researchers in other countries, um, 
um, large, you know, large groups of um, perhaps policymakers and so on, but anything that in a way um, uh, expands the networks uh, by which your research is connected to everyone else. That's that's the networked repertoire. Okay, two for two. Fantastic. All right, criticism number three. So, uh, Sam, you haven't said anything about your position in the field. I'm concerned about the power dynamics between you as a privileged interviewer and your interviewees. So this we call the anchored repertoire, right? And this repertoire uh, is about fidelity to research subjects and making clear um, kind of that your job is to help represent them um, and to give voice, right? Here are the kind of key images, the sociologist as voice giver. Um, and so that criticism comes from the opposite perspective. I worry that you are not adequately giving voice, that you have somehow power dynamics have uh, interfered with that part of the project. And so I need you to clarify that for me. Fantastic. So next, uh, our next quiz question here is, um, the response is, you clearly haven't read Bordeaux's foundational work on this subject. How do you account for that? <laughs> okay, that's that's clearly the charismatic um, repertoire. Um, it, and that's, that's the um, view that good sociological work needs to pay special attention to specific um, you know, big sociologists that existed in the past. And those are, you might find those views particularly in uh, collected volumes that kind of perform an exegesis on um, um, uh, you know, someone like Bourdieu, um, like Foucault, uh, like Boltanski, uh, and the critiques would often be, you know, well, you haven't, you know, Bourdieu didn't say just that, you know, uh, Bourdieu did account for what you're saying in footnotes, you know, 400 of uh, the, <laughs> right? Um, so, so a lot of um, centering on respect and uh, accuracy with regards to, to these, um, you know, big figures that really, you know, that, that have shaped our discipline in history. Right, so far so good. Yeah, they're doing pretty well. It's like they wrote a book on the topic. All right, Sam. I'm concerned. I'll, I'll be sure to blow yeah. this one. Let's screw this one about off. The political implications of your work. The political <laughs> implications. Uh, this paper is reinforcing some negative stereotypes. So yeah, this is what we call the civic, the civic repertoire, right? Which is about sociology's commitment uh, to political equality and civic equality, um, and particularly, you know as your concern highlights, right? Like the political outcomes of research, right? Mm -hmm. If you represent people in this way, will that actually cause them harm? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that's part of part of what we do too. Thank All you. Right. Okay, Shai, there's really no originality here. You're just applying other people's theories. That has to be the creativity repertoire. Um, where the 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 focus on whether or not you're you've created a new method, you've you did something, uh, you you uh, theorized kind of in a in a very original way. You went and let's say you um, I don't know co uh, coded 
something that's that's previously undone, right? So with, with far less interest in you know, are you actually like producing new uh, you know evidence or uh, or new um, I, I don't know like or or how 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 uh, valid ultimately the findings are, but a strong focus on that fact that you're doing something new that you're really you know innovative um daring and so on so that would be the creative yeah and i we would think also too like about like the aesthetic dimension about the arising as kind of like in this domain i was just reading this paper about physicists and some like obscure physicist theory that seemed highly improbable ended up being true and like and when they asked the authors about why they published it they said well the the theory just looks so good and you're uh-huh. like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are getting to the end here. Um, last, uh, Sam, you might want to reframe your findings to make them more interesting to a general audience. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty difficult to get funding for this project. So this is what we call the marketability repertoire, which is a recognition of the fact that we all have to uh, ensure our ideas are appealing to people and marketable, right? And that on some level, uh, people are interested in what we have to say, right? Um, You know, it's no small feat to get somebody to read a whole book of edited works on the concept of Bourdieu, but it's gotta be appealing, right? (laughs) To drum up support for that as well. I mean, sometimes it comes up in the, um, what's the policy implications question, Mm -hmm. right? Where in a sense, okay, you have this thing, what am I, or, you know, someone in government going to do with this like why 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 does it how does it speak to today's problems that actually interest people out there outside the ivory tower ivory tower fantastic all right kirby how'd they do they did pretty good seven out of seven (laughs) (laughs) so yeah even though it took you 10 years i think you uh i think you studied well so you did well on this exam just happy well, we wanted, didn't fail. That's right. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask. Uh, so, you know, these uh, seven moral repertoires are not just the, not the entirety of the book. You, um, these are the ways that uh, scholars kind of debate and what is the you know the, the moral quality of research. Uh, but there's other things that they do, and you present kind of like a fourfold typology of of how. Um, scholars debate or don't debate how they engage some of these controversial issues so maybe could you tell us uh, what are these four different responses are and maybe kind of put that in the context of one of the substantive topics you talk about which is the culture and poverty debates mm-hmm. yeah um so so as you said kirby our the book um we don't mean to imply that everyone at all times is very civil um, to each other, to 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 one another, uh, just like just like in a in a friendly colloquium, right? And that there, you know, there are controversies that are um, very very fervent that have um, you know people like not wanting to touch them, uh, wanting to um, um, perhaps attack more more um, directly their interlocutors, uh, and um, kind of our, our view is that. Sitting down and really having this conversation is 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 one out of several different responses. Um, with other responses, um, might be com- complete rejection, right? Basically saying, 
this entire this paper is just unacceptable on ethical grounds and um we, we shouldn't even be having this conversation um another could be completely ignoring um the critique like any critique that you got right so basically saying you know oh i don't know some grad students are saying you know so and so but you know I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna let that distract me um you also sometimes see um you know in particular around collected volumes uh, special issues of journals people saying you know sure we have all sorts of different views about this but you know we can just kind of coexist without really getting into this debate, right? You know, like just uh, kind of uh, be 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 a community without really like touching the ne that uh, negative mm -hmm. issue. Then we might disagree, and and then the fourth option is that we might sit down and actually have the the conversation as described, like in in mm -hmm. the quiz. Um, so one of the examples we take on is the um, uh, culture of poverty um research that has been extremely controversial rightly controversial in the history of sociology beginning with the moynihan um report which was um like in a sense claiming that um um poverty among um uh, black americans is is part of a part of a culture the self-perpetuating culture that um have orients them away from the you know, jobs and um, uh, actions that will improve their socioeconomic status, um, which receive, and then we demonstrate that, you know, a great deal of uh, authors completely rejected, not just the report, but any study that was, you know, per, you know tried to um, uh, touch this topic, rightly saying that's blaming, that's the definition of blaming the victim. Uh, we also show, show that some completely ignored the fact that this is controversial and continued to publish, leading to article retractions. Um, we also show that there's there's been attempts at just building kind of community and solidarity around scholars who do research relating to uh, culture and poverty without really trying to like touch the, the um, controversial parts of it. Uh, and then we show that, show that also uh, scholars have been sitting down and having the discussion and voicing criticism, but in a in a conversational um, uh, and manner, right? That that we're seeing in today's research on um, on race and poverty. Um, so those that's that's just one example of a couple, but um, I think it really illustrates that sociologists can weather very controversial topics um, uh, within our discipline. To follow up on that, I'm curious whether the process of identifying these different responses and the different moral repertoires has um, caused you to think about the way that you frame your research or re respond or critique to others' research in a new way. Has this prompted any kind of self-reflection self or maybe just self-awareness on your part? Yeah, so I do think, yeah, like it has helped to clarify kind of the fact that you know sociology is always in tension between these competing moral goods mm -hmm. so like one thing i struggle with a lot is um like what's a contribution and what does that mean like as i write and as i work and i try to think and and part of i think what struck me at first as difficult in grad school was that like i was also really attracted to these like kind of like there's only one right answer to the question <laughs> so like whatever, we talk about some of these debates in the sociology of religion. 
Rodney Stark really famously wrote this article, Secularization R.I.P. All <laughs> theories of secularization have to die and go away and only new stuff will come along. And then when I studied politics, there was uh, these people who were critics of methodological nationalism, the methodological cosmopolitans. Any talk of the nation has to be eradicated. Uh, and I was like drawn to kind of both of these sides of sociology. And so I think for me, it's helped me recognize that this competition between whatever super rigorous data and data that or and research that's civically minded is a is a part of what we do that like that tension is always part of how we contribute and what we think about and so our contributions are sometimes limited because they're focused on one domain of action right or one domain or one way of thinking contribution oh so the other thing i was going to say is that it really helps me extend you know generosity to my fellow colleagues and travelers in this sociological realm because you know part of what we do is we believe in a very deep way is morally significant and so you know when people are 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 trying to criticize you or think about your work i mean they're they're trying to also bring you into their view of the world and what their reality looks like and it's really helped me try to think about that as a grounding kind of thing and I, I will just say also like for me so when we so, so for me it also um kind of clarified that there this sounds sometimes like a cliche but we really are working in a community and it doesn't mean that we like all need to be best friends or um you know or be totally into each other's research but that you know we are we we are um, at the end of the day a professional community, and I, I, I um, the first time we presented this, uh, Anne Mish was um, uh, discussing for us, and I, something she said really like kind of struck me that you know, beyond everything, this is about a lot of hurt feelings. Um, <laughs> that's a really cool way of thinking of of thinking about this. You know, the beyond all the disagreements and everything you have. Uh, so the the her example was quant like the the demographer in the department who gets told by their um i don't know ethnographer colleague like oh you don't even like you only see the numbers whereas i really like care about the uh what these people um you know what what the the interviewees are experiencing and so on whereas like from the you know the demographers like that absolutely doing research that affect that that is central to these people's welfare and life right so i think that also like working through this project clarified to me how much um how many kind of different ways of caring and of th thinking about good research uh, really exist in our discipline mm. that's really important um just thinking about other debates i've been a part of you know they end up talking about specific issues, right? But, um, you know, uh, we are human and we have feelings. And and, uh, and sometimes there's a way of critiquing things that uh, you end up critiquing the person rather than just the idea. And I think that's really helpful here is to give people some language to talk about, you know, why they disagree and um, to put it a little bit more on a level playing field. Really, really value that. I think that's good. Now, I will say, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing a whole lot of civic repertoire language. So I wanted to ask you, what's the moral, what are the main moral repertoires of the book? You know, 
what what which ones are you using to justify the need for this uh, approach yeah that's a great great question because obviously we're our book doesn't stand on thin air right in it we we ourselves were also situated um in in the same environment that we describe in the book i think um absolutely civic in the sense that our intention by drawing by laying out these uh, different repertoires and by showing how um, sociologists have been able to handle a great deal of disagreement with each other, what we do want to promote is an environment where um, different ways of excelling and different ways of doing good research are um, respect not not just respected but actually celebrated, uh, with the understanding that it, you know, we are actually all better off as a community if. Um, we allow for this uh, diversity. Um, I, we also, uh, part of our uh, book also focuses on the anchored um, repertoire in the sense that um, we, we highlight the fact that certain ways of doing sociology have been um, stigmatized, uh, devalued, uh, both in the past and in the present. Um, think about statements like, oh, you're just you're just really an activist, you're not doing sociology and, and, and so on and so forth. And we do want to just uh, not just bring those uh, voices up, but also show that um, they are part of our environment. Not everyone has to do to do that research. Not everyone. Furthermore, not everyone has to like that research. Right. But the fact but uh, it is about really understanding that you know, we are all actually better off, more creative. Um, more uh, diverse uh, if we really acknowledge the existence of this multiplicity. Is there a moral repertoire that typically trumps the others in, what, in your kind of observations? Not really, no. I mean, I think that's kind of the the thing the thing you learn, right? That in some ways, part of what makes sociology or at least, you know, sort of what I've come to believe, and I think the book tries to argue a bit, is that part of what characterizes sociology's success is that it's always an interplay. It's always a conversation about, okay, well, is your work politically relevant? And, you know, not all work is politically relevant, but you can't do work that's like politically regressive or negative, right? You there, There's kind of this way in which the field is structured by these moral logics as, you know, there's lots of things you're allowed to do, but it's not anything goes. And how you navigate and coexist with people who are interested in the social world for political reasons, for scientific reasons, for reasons of representation and understanding, for reasons of creativity or charisma and tradition. Um, you know, like that's part of the the long format discussion that is sociology itself, right? Always debating mm -hmm. these limits. And I think even some of these repertoires, right? Like they're they're kind of always up for debate, right? Some new repertoire theoretically could come along and say, you know what, that market really marketability repertoire, it's really ruining the whole thing and convince all of us, yeah, kick that thing out of here. <laughs> I mean, I will say though. I mean, one one thing we um, we do briefly mention in the book that so so there are uh, situations when one when the conversation 
takes for granted the, the efficiency repertoire, right? The fact that, yeah, okay, you did the research, it's solid, it's, uh, and, um, you know, and the fact that it's politically relevant makes it, uh, that, that's what we're going to focus on in our discussion. But, uh, and one of the, um, one of the times where it becomes apparent is when there's there's scientific fraud that actually comes to light. So I don't know if you remember there, several years ago. Well, he wasn't a sociologist; he was a political scientist. But there was um, a grad student called Michael Lacour uh, mm. who had um, research on um, canvassing that was uh, published uh, either in, like, I believe, in Science or um, an equally uh, uh, top journal. And uh, it got so much coverage and um, so much praise, and um, um, actually, civic groups like adopted the the, the model that Lacour uh, suggested. Um, and then, in hindsight, it turned out that that um, the data was uh, fabricated, right? That there was mm -hmm. no experiment. Obviously, like uh, um, causing a big embarrassment because the assumption was. You know the underlying assumption that yes, there, this research was solid. If it was published in the science, it's uh, you know certainly been vetted, and now we can go ahead and talk about the um, you know the civic repertoire, the um, creativity repertoire, and so on and so forth. So uh, occasionally we might say that the efficiency repertoire does um, trump. At the same time, it's not solely, it's not the only one, and it's not it's certainly not the only consideration that sociologists take when they evaluate research. Yeah, that's a good example. So that brings up kind of one of the hard questions that we wanted to ask you. Um, a lot of the book is about the discourse that people use. And uh, as you say, you know, in most of our context, this is what we're talking about. But um, uh, there's also the role of the actor. So maybe could you tell us a little bit more about where you see the actor fitting into this? For instance, could an actor use small repertoires to do bad things? or for non-altruistic ends? Do we need to worry about you know, things like character? Uh, where does the actor fit into to this picture? Yeah, so part of the way we describe it in the book and the way we think about it is that, yeah, absolutely, actors can use these moral repertoires for bad things, right? And in a sense, like our point is not really to challenge what actors say about their morality, but to observe you know, when are people making claims that they're doing things for moral reasons, for reasons about good and bad behavior? And and how do other people react? Do other people accept that justification, right? And I think, you know, when we think about this question about like, can the actor use negative, you know, use these moral repertoires for negative ends? Absolutely. But at the same time, I mean, you'd be a strange actor to get involved in sociology and spend your days lying about, I mean, people do it, right? Shai was just telling <laughs> us about somebody who did it, right? I mean, people people are very strange, but, you know, on the whole, sociologists, we're not, you know, we're not Wall Street traders, we're not uh, con people, you know, we're not playing a shell game here, you know? Uh, and so I think, you know, by most accounts, like, people do work really hard to try to hold each other accountable. And I think, you know, these are like highly, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about and the research we cite, you know, these are annual review articles, ASR articles, AJS articles. I mean, the most competitive 
things to get published in the field. And, you know, I think at a certain point, like, who knows what people really believe, you know, we can just follow what they say, right? And what mm -hmm. they say is that we're doing it for this moral reason. And everyone seems to at least not have any complaints, right? Not be able to poke a hole in that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do think we need to be concerned about virtue and character, but I also think we need to also, you know, take people when they say they're trying to act virtuous to at least give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, when, when people, uh, use a moral justification, you know, I think the point is to challenge them too, right? To make yeah. them, to hold them accountable to their claims in some ways. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, it, what I, you know, one of the values that comes out of the book is just to take people seriously. Uh, don't don't uh, lead with second guessing, but to to have real conversations and arguments. Uh, yeah, I think that's really good. All right, our next question for you is, uh, what is something that you learned or discovered in the course of this project that you think deserves more exploration, either by yourselves in future research or perhaps by other people? Yeah, um, I, th I think one of the things that's been on my, our minds uh, since finishing this book is um, uh, canons, actually, the sociological canon. Uh, and the conversations that have been going on around, you know, What's the canon? Who should be on the canon? Should be should there be a canon to begin with? Um, and we've been uh, we've been kind of working uh, tentatively on a on a project about that mm -hmm. there because it strikes us that you know who's on the canon can serve uh, certainly as as you know um, a you know a set of a set of researchers who demonstrate you know rigor like methodological rigor uh or um you know theoretical creativity but we can also think of uh figures or p potential uh figures for the canon who uh also demonstrate ethical um conduct um uh or specific moral sense or specific um you know personal way of uh engaging with with the public on um moral Oh, no, sorry, on civic issues. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Ida Wells, for example, um, a person who wasn't just a scholar um, uh, and, and a journalist, but was also actually like doing the work in a sense uh, from getting um, um, kicked off a train uh, after she refused to, to, to give up her seat um, in the first class compartment or the ladies com um, compartment um then suing the the railroad company to uh then uh, uh really working with uh the NWACP and you know, policymakers in DC and so on um or we might think of um you, you know a, a whole array of other scholars who in a way each do something different to us today if we're taking them as a, as um as a member of the canon so um we're thinking of a project that in a way looks at what what do canonized figures do and then what do uh does the pantheon that a we have and b we're considering or is in circulation uh might might, might offer us right and in that sense we're hoping to expand the conversation on the can on the canon beyond the current confines that are um you know 
really about the rigor, about the the lessons, the the direct lessons learned, and more perhaps about these um, uh, figures that inspire and figures that um, bestow some sense of meaning onto the work that we today do. So that that's one example of a topic that emerged from the research. Great, thank you. Yeah, we look forward to that one for sure. So I want to take a step back. Um, this will be a uh, market, maybe a civic repertoire kind of a question. Um, you know, this is the, the altruism, morality, social solidarity section podcast, but, but we are interested in all of sociology um, and even, uh, you know, broader society. So what, what do you think is the potential of this book to improve sociology's relationship with the broader society? I mean, I think on some level, like making these these issues transparent is it makes it easier to explain what sociologists do all day, right? Mm -hmm. It's just clearer for folks to understand what you're up to when you explain to them how you think about what you're doing as morally worthy or morally worthwhile. I don't know, Shai, what, what do you say, Shai? Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, both understanding, both improving our communication with the public, um, also thinking through, like, thinking through difficult, um, difficult topics and difficult conversations that are now on the table, like, not just within our discipline, but actually uh, in the broader field of, um, you know, policy, uh, social policy, um, you know, methodological um, debates, let's say across the social sciences and so on. Um, so I do think like while, while this may work differently in every kind of arena, uh, the more general views that there are, that there is a plurality of repertoires and, you know, like it or not, if we want, <laughs> you know, if we want to move forward, we're going to need to just acknowledge them uh, because, you know, they're going to be the people, people who, who use uh, repertoires that we don't quite like are going to be the ones sitting with us on committees, um, you know, serving with us in various uh, positions. We're going to have to cooperate in some way or another. So I think that's a broader lesson, I think. Well, and even, you know, even broader than that, right, that as sociologists, we need to kind of... Uh, service like try to kind of model a listening and deliberative kind of behavior when engaging with one another right that we should say oh you come from a position of moral concern and my job isn't to overrule you or quiet you but to engage with you and incorporate your concerns so that they become mine as well mm, that's good well i know i've taken a lot from from just you know talking obviously i keep comparing our questions to some of the moral repertoires here <laughs> um uh, we're gonna we're gonna pause real quickly and then elena's got a, a bonus question before we wrap up all right um a bonus question here we're gonna go deep into the theoretical weeds for a minute uh, i want you to talk to us about pragmatism what is the origin of this concept maybe you can think of this as pragmatism for dummies and uh, how do you use it the book. Okay, so pragmatism, uh, its origins lie in American, it's an American philosophical tradition. 
Uh, and you probably know the term pragmatic uh, or being a pragmatist, which means doing what it takes to get things done when you need to get them done, right? Uh, and this whole philo philosophical system um, has deep roots. We draw on uh, some new models of it, um, particularly what they call the new French pragmatism or the the French critical sociology. But uh, I mean, I think really like um, at the core of it for both of us is this concern that John Dewey had with what he called moral theories, that science and part of the development of science and education and society was all intertwined with the, these questions about what is the good life? What is the good society? And, you know, for for me and for us a little bit, pragmatism means in part acting towards those goals while recognizing that, you know, they're utopian, they're impossible to achieve in practice, right? We'll never have perfect data. We'll never represent our subjects perfectly. We'll never have the perfect civic society, but that by working towards those things and being motivated by them, we help to foster the solutions to bring those about. And so, um, you know, pragmatism's back in fashion again. <laughs> it goes in and out <laughs> of fashion. Uh, and um, part of the reason for that is that the discipline has become more concerned with, you know, like things like public sociology and making making sure our 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 discipline helps contribute to the good society in some way, shape, or form. And so we, you know, we try to, jump in and into those themes as well. Yeah, and I think I think the the what we are taking from uh, American pragmatism, which which makes its way also through uh Boltensky and Tevino's work is really that uh, assumption of good faith that we talked about earlier, the that the, the assumption that you know individuals at the end of the day have the capacity to be reasonable, to be um to work together to resolve obstacles, problems, um, right? And go and to go with solutions that work, right? The solutions that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, allow us to, you know, keep our department together, even if we completely disagree over who to hire or, uh, you know, who, uh, or, or, or how to uh, allot the budget and so on. You say even if, like, it's not the default. <laughs> <laughs> Right, exactly. Right, that that we even that in the common situation where we disagree with each other, we continue to cooperate. So that's a lesson that we're taking from uh, American pragmatism. But we hope that um, the book really amplifies and brings um, brings into current conversations. Mm -hmm. This is great. You know, it makes me think we need a little. Um, I, I guess I'm. I've totally, I'm, I've totally bought on because I'm thinking we need little signs at, at conferences, or maybe even on Twitter, like, you know, okay, anchored, anchored uh, question here, you know, <laughs> and then well, uh, I, no, love, I, I love it, I love it, <laughs> or just hand out like bingo uh, uh, sheets, you know, with uh, <laughs> right. examples, yeah. yeah. Yes, you get so many tokens, and uh, once you've used all of those moral mm -hmm. arguments, then. Uh, you have to rest your case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've already heard yeah. efficiency complaints. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this has just been a lot of fun. Uh, Elena, any final questions or, or comments? 
Not at all. Although I will um, recommend to our readers, read the last chapter before you read the book. It'll help you out a lot. It's got a map of the moral repertoire. Yeah, I will just say that what we try to do is keep the um, um, keep keep some, a lot of the like harder core theory out of the main text, but we do put it in an appendix. So like our sociologist friends who are actually interested in the theory theory uh, are invited to go uh, first to the appendix, take a look, and then um, um, you know. Read read through the the book itself, and then uh, hopefully people who aren't that interested in the underlying workings will be, or are interested in one specific chapter, will be able to just look at that um, without um, without really needing to get into the weeds of the theory. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. We want to say thank you to Shai and to Sam for joining us. Uh, in case you haven't seen their book, Moral Minefields. How Sociologists Debate Good Science. Uh, you should check it out and buy it. You can buy one for your friends. Maybe buy one for your whole department. That actually might be a good idea. Love it. Yes. Kirby, we're just we going to bring you around wherever we go. Clarify, <laughs> <laughs> Kirby is not being paid by Shy and Sam. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Kirby and Elena, for yeah. Um, both for the interview, but also for um, running this series for the, the section. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to you both. Yeah, your questions are yeah, so thoughtful too, really helpful. Well, last thank you to our audience for listening and uh, stay tuned for our next podcast, which will be with Josh Murray next month. Thanks all. Bye.